Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. Hey, everybody, it's Buck Joffrey here, and I'm going to do something special today. This episode is actually not a wealth formula episode. This is an episode of Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Now, this is a very, very cool topic that I wanted you to hear. It is about potentially screening for all sorts of cancers in early stages and a technology that could literally save hundreds of thousands of lives, including yours and your families. And um, I wanted to make sure that you had a chance to listen to it. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna play a good chunk of this podcast for you, but obviously if you're not interested, uh, then you can turn it off. But if you are, make sure to go to Sapio with Buck Joffrey and download the rest. In pursuit of health and wisdom, Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Here with Dr. Uh, Joshua Offman. Josh, welcome to the show. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So um, I want to start out just with some relative... Well, first of all, let's do this. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Obviously, I did a little introduction of you already on the show, but... Tell us how you, uh, you know, you're a gastroenterologist. Um, how did you end up where you are now? Well, it's a great question. So um, I did my uh, undergraduate degree at Berkeley, and I was very interested in the history and philosophy of science. And so I got very into, you know, how you, how you begin to study um, technology and how you better understand its utility and the value that it provides you know, to society. When I went to medical school, I got very interested in gastroenterology as a field. I did that as my training at UCLA and I became a gastroenterologist, but I did my postdoc, basically a postgraduate degree at the Rand Corporation, again, studying technology and how do you, from a very scientific medical sense, understand the value of technology to an individual, to society, to the healthcare system. And I spent about seven years in academia doing that across all fields, like just any kind of new technology in healthcare. How do you evaluate it? How do you assess its value? And um, after doing that for quite some time, I started getting recruited by life sciences companies who were actually developing this type of technology. And I ended up going to Amgen, which was a biotechnology company, because I kind of felt that's where the puck is going. Um, back in two, early 2000s, biotechnology was just coming into its own. And I really wanted to try to skate, you know, to where the puck was going. And 
joined Amgen and spent 16 incredible years there in a number of different roles. Um, and then when I was able to retire from Amgen at the age of 55, again, I thought to myself, you know, where's the puck going now? And I got very interested in, in the relationship between human genomics and machine learning as a way of finding diseases. And I joined GRIP. Fantastic. Well, you know, we're going to talk uh, in, in a fair amount of detail uh, about this test that that uh, Grill has called Gallery, which is, um, you know, which is really significant potentially uh, in terms of uh, improving human longevity and health span and all that kind of thing. But before we get into that, you know, the test is related to cancer and it's related uh, you know, to detecting early cancer, I thought it would be useful for people who really don't know that much about the biology here is just to give a little bit of relevant background in terms of cancer biology. So we're on the same page. Obviously, you and I are both physicians, but let's start with some of the basics. Like, What exactly is cancer in the first place? So cancer really is a disease of the genome. Um, and, you know, it really is very much related to the genetics and the heritability of of um, of your DNA, and but it is really uncontrolled cellular growth, and and there's a number of reasons, many many different reasons why uh, cells will grow in an uncontrolled way that become cancerous, and but generally in many of them they're related to the genomics. Now, what we've learned about genomics is it's not just the code of the genome, right? So your DNA is made of a code of four nucleotides. Um, but what we're learning now is that there are molecules that attach to the DNA that regulate the genetic code, and they turn genes on and off. Right, and, and that's referred often by as, as epigenetics, right? The, uh, people exactly talk right. about the genetics being the part that maybe codes the actual you know, protein itself, and then you have the epigenetics, which is the material around that, around those uh, sequences, which before, frankly, we didn't think much of, right? And, and now we're figuring out that they actually do mean something. Buck, that's exactly right. And um, so when we say, you know, interrogating the genome, learning about the genome, it's a disease of the genome, that includes the code of the geno genome and all the things that are attached to the genome, like, you know, these, these molecules that we call methylation molecules or methyl groups that attach to the genome that turn tumor promoter genes on, they turn tumor suppressor genes off, and they do that across many, many different kinds of cancer. And so they're very related to cancer and the development of cancer. Right. And so one of the things I want to kind of, um, you know, and this will lead into the test later, but each one of these potential cancers and the, 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 the mix of the uh, genomic sequences, the mutations, there's, and the epigenetics, these methylation uh, uh, points in the epigen epigenome, they lead to essentially various types of fingerprints, right? And these fingerprints are uh, are basically kind of what we're, what we're looking at when we start looking at potential early detection. Is that correct? That's right. So most genetic tests up till recently have focused on mutations, right? Changes in the code of the DNA. 
and many of them are associated with cancer. But again, for people like myself who are over the age of 50, I have many mutations in my genome that are similar and the same as cancer patients have, but I don't have cancer. So these cancer mutations are uncommon. Um, some of them are very important for cancer, but some of them are also shared by people who don't have cancer. So they're not always, they're important to know about if you're diagnosed with cancer. Do you carry this mutation or that mutation? Because it can tell you a lot about the cancer and its potential treatments, but they're not great ways to find cancer because they're uncommon and they often also exist in people without cancer. One of the interesting things that I think people don't know, and maybe you can comment on this a little bit since you're in this space, is that cancer cells, it's not uncommon for cancer cells to exist within healthy human beings, but we have something called the immune system, obviously, that's constantly surveilling our bodies, right? And if you wanna talk a little bit about, you know, how that function works, that might be useful as well, because there is this idea that maybe you have cancer cells, but you don't have cancer. So what's the difference there? Well, it's a great point. And we're, you know, we're on the early innings of, of really understanding that interaction. We do know <clears throat> that our immune system is surveying uh, the body all the time and does have the ability to um, kind of shut down early cancerous growths. Um, the extent to which that happens, where it happens, when it happens, and why it happens is something that we're still beginning to understand. But we do know that the immune system plays a really important role in what we call immune surveillance of cancer. Um, but we also know that our prior understanding of cancer is less than complete. And we are now, by looking at the biology of cancer, like the DNA from cancer cells uh, that we see in the blood, the immune signatures that we see in the blood, we're learning all kinds of new things about cancer now. Uh, for example, the old way that we used to stage cancer is pretty crude relative to looking at the biology of cancer by looking at its DNA and those signatures are much more sophisticated. And as a result, we're learning different things about the natural history of cancer. So there's still, it's, it's early days still, and we're learning quite a lot, but we know that even single cancer cells in circulation, when you can find them, are very informative and may signify that you do have a cancer brewing and um, it's very hard right now for us to know um, whether these early signs of cancer are mean that the immune system is, is mounting a response that's gonna shut down the cancer or whether you actually have an early cancer that is gonna be slow growing or fast growing. Right, right. So um, in the big picture, uh, obviously we know cancer is a big killer. We know cardiovascular diseases typically the number one cause, we've talked on our show about how we don't even think that should be in the top 10 anymore with what we know. Uh, but now with cancer, uh, it's obviously very common. Just give us a little, some statistics on this. Like what percentage of people develop cancer in their lives? So I think it's, it's somewhere between 40 and 50% of men and women will develop a cancer in their lifetime. Um, it's very high. We know that cancer is soon to become the number one killer of men and women worldwide. Right now it's ranked number two 
but I think the epidemiology suggests it's going to overtake cardiovascular disease uh, very shortly. And why is that? Why is it such a killer? It's because we're finding most cancer too late when it's already spread, symptoms are present, and there are very few treatment options. Uh, so we know one of the only ways to really begin to, you know, we've been fighting this war against cancer, as you know, for 50 years, and it's not one we're winning. Uh, so we need to turn, we need to open up kind of a new front in the war on cancer and get much better at early detection when cancers can be cured. So which cancers can we, okay, let's, let's talk about sort of traditional medicine before we get into, you know, what you guys are doing that might change this whole thing. But right now, as it stands, you know, there's ver various guidelines for early detection of certain cancers. Which cancers are those? And, um, you know, tell us how effective those are right now. Great question. So right now today, uh, we screen for three cancers in women, breast cancer, cervical cancer, colorectal cancer. We screen for one or two in men, colorectal and prostate. And then for heavy smokers, whether you're a man or woman, we have a low-dose CT for screening for lung cancer in heavy smokers who meet that criteria. So all told, if everybody, you know, if you look at adults over the age of 50 who are at elevated risk for cancer, those five screening tests are finding about 15% of the incident cancers in, those po in that population. So you can right? see very quickly, that's not going to do the yeah. trick. We're yeah. not going to shift the cancer mortality curve or bend the cancer mortality curve or win the war on cancer, finding 15% of the cancers at an earlier stage. You're saying out of the cancers that we can currently, the, with our current paradigm that we screen for, even though we have these guidelines and we're doing this in a lot of patients, we're only catching about 15% of those cancers early on. No, of, of all cancers. Of so if you, look cancers. At, if you look at the, um, the population uh, in the United States over the age of 50, and you look at all the cancers they're going to get uh, based yeah. on the epidemiology in the United States, those screening tests are only able to find, given their, their compliance and their performance, about 15% of them. So again, when I went to get my colonoscopy, when I turned 50, I felt pretty good about myself. Right. What I forgot what I was, is that I was 10 times more likely in that very moment to be diagnosed with some cancer I wasn't even looking for, right? So whenever you're looking, so we live in a world of single cancer screening right now. We screen for one cancer at a time. We look at shadows and images, or we directly inspect tissues. And um, though that's quite limited, right? So you're only gonna find uh, those very few cancers and you're much more likely to be diagnosed with one of the many cancers that we're not screening for than those. And then those are also limited because they have very high false positive rates. And many of the cancers like early encapsulated prostate cancers, or the early hormone-positive breast cancers, people may be more likely to die with than die from. So, so those are the limitations of current screening. Um, I want to get back to this idea of like the limitations of screening in terms of the the all the different kinds of cancers there are. 
because I think I saw on your website, um, correct me if I'm wrong, that of the cancer deaths that occur on a yearly basis, 70% of those cancer deaths are occurring in cancers that we're not screening for at all, that we're just basically playing defense on. Is that right? That's exactly right. So many of the deadliest cancers, stomach cancer, esophageal cancer, pancreas cancer, ovarian cancer, uterine cancer, we have no recommended screening tests for at all, liver cancer. And so uh, all, when you, it's kind of the classic streetlight problem where yeah. you, know, you, have, you drop your keys and there's a streetlight over here. So that's where you're looking. Yep. But all the, deaths, all the deaths are happening over here in the dark. Uh, interesting stuff. So let's, let's shift gears a little bit. You know, you're the, you know, we're going to, uh, talk a little bit about gallery now, which is the test, the biology behind the blood test, um, that grill is doing, uh, kind of has an interesting backstory. It sounds yeah. like it was involved in, 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 uh, trying to sort of minimize the, the use of amniocentesis. You want to tell us a little bit about the backstory there? Cause I think it's pretty interesting. It's fat. Thank you for asking. It's a, fa- it's actually a fascinating story. So at Illumina, which is the biggest uh, sequencing company in the world, the chief medical officer there was uh, uh, someone named Rick Klausner from the NCI. And they had a hypothesis that, you know, because the mother and the fetus are sharing blood through the placenta, <clears throat> that we might be able to look at the mother's blood to determine whether there was a chromosomal abnormality in the fetus rather than sticking a large bore needle into the uterus in the amniotic sac and drawing out the fluid, because that carries a risk of aborting the fetus. Right. And so they did a study in 125,000 women, healthy, pregnant women. And sure enough, they learned that, yes, we can find the fetal chromosomes in the mother's blood. But in look, there were 10 really abnormal cases where they looked at the DNA of these women and one of the lab directors, uh, a woman, and Dr. Klausner said, you know, you only see abnormally, abnormal DNA like this in people with cancer. Bring all those people back. And those 10 women all were found to have a cancer, many different types of cancer. And that was when the light bulbs went off within Illumina saying, huh, we may have just found a way to find asymptomatic early cancer in people who have no idea they have cancer by looking at the DNA circulating in their blood. So they spun out Grail as a uh, private company and Grail raised a lot of capital to do some of the largest studies ever done to figure this biology out and developed this asset. Um, And that kind of brings us to what exactly sort of the technology is because it's based on uh, this concept of cell-free DNA. Um, talk about what cell-free DNA is. I mean, it's it's kind of what it sounds like, but why is it why is it of significance? Well, it's really important. So, just so that uh, everybody understands, you know, all cells in our body carry DNA, and when they die or are injured, they release that DNA into your blood, as long as there's access to the bloodstream, and so. There's a lot of DNA that's circulating in our blood, and we call that cell-free DNA. Now, tumors, by definition, cancerous cells, are growing faster than our normal cells most of the time. And so when they die, they also shed their DNA into blood. 
So when you get a sample of DNA in someone's blood, it's a mixture of healthy cell DNA and tumor DNA. And um, GRAIL, when it was founded, did a very unbiased and open experiment. And they said, let's look at all this DNA in the blood and let's test all the available methods about how to read this DNA. We'll look at mutations. We'll look at chromosomal changes. We'll look at RNA. We'll look at proteins. We'll look at DNA fragment lengths. And we'll look at the methylation status of these DNA fragments. In other words, how are they methylated? Are the genes hypermethylated? Are they hypomethylated? And because there are very consistent patterns of methylation in cancer. These are all the hallmarks of cancer. And they compared all of these approaches head to head. And they learned that by far and away, the best way to detect cancer was by looking at these methylation patterns in these fragments of DNA. And again, we, we've, uh, I think a nice way to think about it for people, again, to me is like methylation patterns. We talk about epigenomes. But really what we're talking about is, you know, these DNA related fingerprints of cancer. Um, that we're using all of this information that we have to put together and say that when there's cancer in the body, there's these various fingerprints in the blood that you're able to pick up on. Is that a fair assessment? That's exactly right. And that's why machine learning has been used because we've taught these machine learning algorithms by doing these very large studies to recognize these very common patterns, these fingerprints that you only see in cancer. You almost never see these types of fingerprints in people who are known not to have cancer. And the other important thing just to mention, these methylation groups, these epigenetic patterns, they also carry another fingerprint, which is where in the body, what organ or tissue that signal comes from. So our GRAIL test called Gallery is a two-step test. So you, you sequence the DNA for these patterns, you subject it to a machine learning classifier that says that's a cancer signal or not. And then if it's a cancer signal, it goes through a second step that says we predict that cancer signal is coming from the ovary or the pancreas or the stomach. And we do that with very high accuracy. I'm just curious when you, you know, you're using machine learning, you're using artificial intelligence, obviously uh, medicine is one of the places where we're probably going to see the greatest impact of artificial intelligence. Does that mean that um, the test that you have, the gallery test is actually improving in real time sort of because you're getting constant feedback? That's right. So there's a certain way you have to do it. You, know, you can't just do it on an ongoing continuous basis because you need to revalidate and retrain. So, so yes, that's exactly right. Because Gallery is now out there available as a lab developed test in the world, we've now done over 100,000 tests. We're using that data now to train the next version of our algorithm. And then we'll revalidate that. And then that'll be the next version of Gallery. And it will improve its performance by now having seen a much broader array of different cancers and different signals and in a lot more people. How many cancers are we talking about right now that we're, that, that galleries, galleries able to, uh, to detect? Well, we, you know, there are hundreds of types of cancer and we're still grouping them. For example, we call 
you know, there are four or five different types of breast cancer. We call breast cancer one. There are many yeah. kinds of lung cancer. We call lung cancer one. So we're still doing a lot of grouping. But if you ungrouped everything, even a little bit, we're, you know, we're, we're absolutely, with all the grouping, we're over 50 different types of cancer. If you ungrouped them, obviously, it would be a much bigger number than that. Right. Well, and that's obviously a big improvement compared to the five that you mentioned earlier. And remember, again, as you mentioned, most of the cancer deaths are occurring from all these other cancers that we're not we're not looking for at all. Um, Not that it's like a head to head battle, but I am curious, like if you take like a breast cancer uh, typical, uh, you know, the type of screening that we do today. Uh, what kind of, you know, sensitivity that is compared to, you know, the type of testing that you're doing with gallery? Like if you go head to head, where you, do you have statistics to say one's more likely to find that cancer than the other? Well, we know, we know a lot, quite a lot. I mean, again, what, it's really important for everybody to understand that the gallery test is not intended to replace right. existing single cancer screening test. It's it's proposed to be a complement, kind of an adjunct test yeah. to add to it. Because remember, these tests were designed very differently. So mammography is a great example. You know, mammography is looking at uh, shadows from uh, images taken of the breast tissue, and it's trying to find everything. It's trying not to miss anything. And in fact, of 100 women who have a positive mammogram, only about five to six of them will end up having breast cancer. So it, it surveys everything very broadly. Now, gallery, because it's looking for a very common signal that's shared by over 50 or more cancers, we've done the opposite. We're not, we're trying to be very specific. In other words, we're trying, they're, they're focused on being very sensitive and their positive predictive value, which means if you have a positive test, how often is it cancer? Their number is about 5%. Yeah. Our numbers are the opposite. So with gallery, we will miss a lot of the breast cancers that mammography may find. But if we find a signal for breast cancer, the likelihood that it's going to be cancer is somewhere between 40 and 50%. Right. Much more, in order of magnitude, better um, because it's so much more specific for cancer. Um, But we know that a lot of these slow-growing cancers, like slow-growing breast and prostate, that are found by imaging and lung. Again, these these nodules in the lung that low-dose CT finds are often not cancer, and they're not going to kill people. They're also not shedding a lot of DNA into the blood. Right. And so gallery is not going to find those cancers that we worry about that we're overdiagnosing today. Okay, well, Formula Nation, that's all I'm going to give you. If you want the rest of this episode, again, go download Sapio with Buck Joffrey. It's the same way that you downloaded Wealth Formula. Hopefully, I get you hooked on that stuff as well so I can help you guys stay healthy and happy as well as wealthy. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. 
I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.